Hi, I'm Alex Bellinger, and this is Small Biz Pod on Tuesday, the 22nd of September. Well, welcome to uh, another episode of Small Biz Pod, and uh, really glad you're still all listening. Uh, welcome to new listeners, of which there have been many over the past few weeks and months. So, thanks all for listening. As you know, Small Biz Pod is really about uh, giving you insight and pearls of wisdom that you just don't hear or get anywhere else from in-depth interviews with startups, small business owners and entrepreneurs. So enjoy it and spread the word. So after having talked to various web and technology startups and others over recent weeks, it's a great pleasure as always for me to talk to a business on the high street, making stuff, selling it to real people in the street. And so I have a great interview with um, Jill Sutherland, who is the co-founder of a sandwich bar startup called Taste. And she really has some amazing insights and some really, really useful, practical business knowledge that she shares with us in the interview for any business, whether you're on the, the high street, whether you're on the internet, it makes no difference. R this is precisely why I love mixing it up on Small Biz Pod because the combination of businesses can give you know real insight into you know businesses across sectors. So stay tuned for Jill. Really, really good interview. And then I'd like to welcome back how about that? Welcoming back a sponsor, XLN Telecom, who you remember sponsored in May, have come back to Small Biz Pod. They enjoyed it. Uh, they got some great results from it. And XLN are the UK specialists in cost-effective phone lines, calls, and broadband, specifically for the small business market. So XLN Telecom in themselves are a great startup story. Uh, I noticed that they are up for an award at the Orange, Orange Business Awards this uh, year. So uh, do check them out. Click on one of the XLN Telecom banners on the site. Great deals if you're looking to cut costs on phone calls and broadband. And of course, audible.co.uk, the UK's largest provider of downloadable audiobooks with over 30,000 titles. If you want to grab your free audiobook on business or any topic at all, then head over to audible.co.uk forward slash smallbizpod or uh, click on one of the banners there. Uh, you can sign up for a free trial. Uh, you don't have to stick with the trial, but you still get the free book anyway, free audiobook. So it's well worth doing, and I'm sure you're going to stick with it anyway because, uh, like me, uh, I, just, I just love the books available, and I'll recommend one towards the end of the show. So do support our sponsors. It's what keeps Small Biz Pods and my head afloat and keeps us being able to produce what I hope you'll agree are great interviews and a really, really useful resource. So thanks ever so much to Audible and XLN Telecom. And of course to you for listening, because otherwise uh, this would be nothing. Okay, so let's now go straight into the interview with Jill Sutherland of Taste. Okay, well, this week on Small Biz Pod, uh, return to another real small business well, a real small business is not perhaps the quite the right word but it's always as you know uh, a real pleasure of mine to talk to startups entrepreneurs small business owners who make stuff who are out there on the high street selling stuff and 
more often than not, they have just as interesting stories, if not more interesting stories, and really, really useful practical advice, more so often than some of the kind of uh, flashy Web 2.0 startups that I also love talking to. So today, I'm really delighted to have on the show Jill Sutherland, who, with her husband, uh, set up a, a few years ago a uh, sandwich bar and coffee bar called Taste. Jill, welcome to Small Biz Pod. Hello, nice to talk to you. Now, tell me a little bit about Taste. Th- there's 101 coffee bars and and and, and sandwich shops uh, on high streets all over the country. You've got Pret-a-Manger and the chains and all of those Absolutely. kind of things. Why did you and your husband decide to quit your office jobs and do this? Well, I think for us, it was very much um, a long-term plan. We were still really enjoying our jobs. Rich was in advertising, I was in public relations, you know, doing very well. But I think it gets to the point where you think, you know, do I still want to be doing this in 10 years' time? You know, perhaps we've started a family and things, and is it something I want to be doing into my 40s? Um, And the answer for us was always no. Mm -hmm. So we, we really wanted to be our own boss didn't necessarily want to start a consultancy doing what we were doing before. We wanted something that was going to give us um, a good standard of living and also be um, be valuable to us, you know, to sell on in, in future down the line yeah. um, and be a bit of a retirement pot. So we really went through loads of different ideas um, for small business startup. We are really into food. Mm-hmm. really enjoy eating out, but I wouldn't describe myself as a kind of through-and-through through foodie in the way that some cafe owners are. Um, mm-hmm. We approached our business model from a, a successful business perspective, not necessarily because our hobby was in baking great cakes yeah. you know, or, or making fantastic pies and things. Yeah. And for us, it really came together because we wanted to do something locally. So we, we looked at lots of the different town centres near to where we live in Essex. Uh-huh. We wanted something where the startup costs were relatively low, you know, so we didn't want something where we had a huge, big back, back of shop area stacked to the rafters with expensive equipment. Yeah. And I also had a friend who a few years previous had been made redundant and had opened a cafe um, over in Cardiff. So I kind of felt I knew a little bit about, about that business model. And from there and from reading a million and one business startup books, um, we really started to develop the idea of taste, which was all about an independent family-run sandwich bar and coffee shop, but that was branded and was professional enough to make people feel like we were part of a chain. Okay. So a bit of a hybrid, kind of a bit of the best of both worlds. And, and that's what, how we got to taste. And, and presumably, I mean, uh, your, your, I understand your kind of three-year three business plan was to kind of really, really sort of set the model, set the set the, the, the business on the right road and make sure that it was profitable and make sure the Absolutely. format was right and then, yeah. you know, potentially really to become a chain, yeah. as it were. Yeah, possibly. I mean, we, we were never certain right at the beginning as to how we would expand the business because um, and we just actually had our third birthday on the 8th of May, which is a fantastic point to get to mm. um, and makes us feel much more secure. Um, but we knew that we didn't just want to have one shop. Yeah. So cause we're incredibly ambitious and we really wanted to move the business as far forward as we could. So all the time, our, our, our business plan, our first three year business plan was always to get as established as possible, to make as much revenue as possible from that one shop unit and to make every single minute of the day pay for itself. And we really reached that point. We're very, very busy. We've won numerous awards. 
Yeah. And we're at the point now where we're thinking, okay, what's the best option to expand? Is it through um, natural growth where we open more shops and run them ourselves? Or is it to go down a franchise route? Mm. And either could work. But I think for us, franchise is interesting because we, again, would like to do something slightly different. Yeah. A bit of a hybrid whereby it's not, you know, a really big chain, you know, like a subway or, or something like that. It's it's a bit more family centric. So we'd be really interested if we, if we do go down the line of talking to, you know, perhaps married couples like the position we were in about four years ago. Yeah. Who want to start up on their own, who kind of want an independent cafe, but just want a bit more handholding. Um, and I think that's perhaps the route that we'll go down because um, I think that's something that's not seen a lot in the UK. Yeah. Why, interestingly enough, why didn't you choose, when you were you know, looking at your options, why didn't you choose a franchise route for yourselves, as it were? Wouldn't it have been easier? Um, I think that it would have, for us, it would have, uh, the investment wouldn't necessarily have been worthwhile because I think so much of what you pay for when you pay for a franchise is the expertise in the marketing, in the branding, in um, in the retail layout, the merchandising. Yeah. And as that's the background Rich and I came from, for us, it would feel like we were paying for something that we could do ourselves. Yeah. I think if you're coming from a you know, background where you, you know, you've perhaps worked with food before, and that's your passion, but you've got no idea how to run a business, how to get the cash flow right, how to market yourself, how to brand your business, then franchising is, is a very good option because you're going to get help with all of that. Yeah. So in terms of branding, I mean, obviously you guys have got, uh, as you say, uh, you know, your background is more branding and, and, and awareness and, and business than food. Uh, what kind of things are important to a small retailer? I mean, I guess this is this sounds like a very obvious question and maybe the answers will be very obvious, but I think sometimes it's as well to remind ourselves of some of the things we, we ought to be doing. What things should, should what things did you think about in terms of branding when you were creating Taste? Well, we, we wanted to have the clearest possible message for anyone passing the shop so that there's absolutely no confusion in a customer's mind as to what they're going to get when they walk in through the door. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, often you walk past and uh, cafes particularly, I know there's one across the road from us, and there's a multitude of confusing, conflicting signs, you know, luminous mm-hmm. handwritten boards, millions of A boards all chalked up. Yeah. And I think all that does is confuse the customer. We keep things really, really simple. We're about fresh, we're about healthy, we're about handmade. Mm-hmm. And we just repeat that over and over again. Our, our corporate colours reflect that. The, the messages we have in our posters reflect that. The way that we train our staff to serve our customers reflects that. Everything is consistent. And I think that's incredibly important mm-hmm. because people then get to know you and trust you for what you do best. Um, and that's what keeps, keeps them coming back for more. So... Really, keep it simple. Keep it really simple. It doesn't need to be complicated. The best brands are so simple. Uh, I mean, EasyJet, you know, that's such a strong brand. How simple is that? Is their message, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think that small retailers can learn so much from that. Um, and it really, it, does, it doesn't have to be rocket science. It just has to be really clear and really concise. Because thinking about, you know, your kind of traditional high street, it very often it is, I mean, it, the, the, the chains aside... Very often it is classified ads in the window, posters for, you know, um, ice creams and, yeah. and, and, and just a kind of pleth- – it becomes like a kind of advertising board for yeah. a whole range of the brands that are being sold within the shop, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
and we've really stayed away from that we we have our own brand yeah. um and we don't we don't advertise the fact that we you know we we have a we do fresh smoothie blends as an example and we buy those smoothie blends in you know yeah. in packs of ready frozen fresh fruit that we blend now lots of other independent cafes i've seen advertising this particular producer's brand we don't do that. We don't need to do that. Yeah. We've given each smoothie our own name, um, you know, and that keeps our brand pure and it doesn't muddle things for the consumer. Are there ever, is there ever any kind of pressure from the, your suppliers f- from them to, you know, push their brand rather than keep it within the realms of your own, as it were? No, no, not pressure. I think that I think obviously you're offered all of the kind of the merchandising yeah. support stuff. You know, um, I mean we stock Tyrrells and they're always great. You know, with with offering lots of of nice um, merchandising support material and things. But we never ever find that there's an issue if we don't want to use it. Yeah. Yeah, as yeah. long as I think you're buying from them, I don't think they really no, care. No, absolutely. <laughs> but you can kind of see how perhaps some shops. Um, are kind of persuaded by, um, you know, the, their local reps to put all this stuff in the window. Yeah, absolutely. But I think as the owner, you, you first have to have a really clear um, image in your mind of, of what your business is and what its brand is. And you have to keep coming back to that all the time. Every single decision that you make, whether it's, um, you know, which T-shirts you're going to put your staff in or whether it's which floor covering you're going to buy, you know, whether it's what colour you might paint the walls, whether it's what mugs you might buy to serve your coffee in. Yeah. Every single decision you make, the, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, does this fit my brand? Yeah. And I think if you do that, then it's much easier to keep things really consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other, the other important thing, obviously, is kind of getting the whole business angle right. Aren't margins horrifically tight on the high street right now? I mean, for any retailer, let alone a, a food retailer. Um. Yes. I mean, obviously, for, for food, um, we've seen some real price hikes in the last kind of 12, 18 months, particularly. Uh, it's certainly still manageable, you know, to achieve that kind of golden um, 60% profit margin that, that you want on food. Mm-hmm. I think that the key for us has been in, in kind of macro managing that bottom line. So right at the beginning, you know, weighing everything, knowing exactly what grammage goes in a sandwich of each filling and mm-hmm. knowing exactly how much everything costs so that when we do have price increases that we can adjust it really easily mm. and, and know for definite that no money is slipping out the back door without us knowing about it and i think that's the most important thing the prices aren't so high that it's not manageable we're still you know even now you know making a good profit yeah but we perhaps wouldn't have been if, if that hadn't have been macro managed and we hadn't been able to really see the transparency of it all yeah yeah how did you actually sit down practically and 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 work out all of the costs i mean there must have been you know who did you talk to there must have been a, a certain amount of guesswork initially if you've never run a, a, a yeah. retail outlet or a or a you know sandwich shop yeah. and you're going into it from a completely different background mm-hmm. what did you have to learn and when did you learn it from as it were well we kind of approached it back to front in that we we worked out um, roughly what we could charge a customer in our particular location because we already knew which shop unit we wanted to go for. Yeah. So we knew that, as an example, there's absolutely no way on the earth that a customer in that location would pay more than £2.60 for a chicken sandwich. Mm-hmm. So we kind of worked backwards from that point. 
making sure that we could afford the quality of chicken that we wanted, that we could afford the quality of bread that we wanted, that would be left with enough money to pay wages, that would be left with enough money to pay the rent. Hmm. And we did that by by buying sandwiches, by you know competitive sandwiches, weighing out the amount of filling that they put in them so that we could then weigh out the amount that we'd be buying in and we could get the quality right, we could get the price right, we could negotiate on price. Yeah. So we kind of worked worked it all out in that way based on um, the number of customers that we um, anticipated would get through the door, um, helping us to understand what our daily turnover would be. And we kind of calculated it all like that. Yeah. But certainly there's a lot of guesswork. And I remember on the first day, you know, as much as you've done all your research and you've got a million and one Excel spreadsheets with <laughs> figures everywhere, yeah. you still stand there and think, oh, my God, you know, are we actually going to make any money? We've yeah, never absolutely. done this before. Yeah. But it did, I have to say, it did work out. And whereas we had the odd one or two sandwiches where we found that we perhaps didn't have a high enough profit margin, yeah. it was easy enough to tweak that. And we had plenty of others where the profit margin was much higher than we than we needed. So yeah. it did it did all work out. And uh, I mean, obviously, the biggest overhead of any retail business is the is the unit, the, the shop itself. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably, you're renting. Um, we are, yeah. Wh- how how did you? What 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 sort of capital expenditure did you have at the outset? And and was that kind of self funded, or did you did you manage to extract some money from those mean bank managers? Oh, well, they weren't, probably um, weren't mean three years ago, were they? They were probably hand, <laughs> giving money out hand over mean. fist. <laughs> we um, we basically cobbled together our startup budget from from a little bit from the bank. We sold our our nice car, um, yeah. loans from family, a bit of a credit card job. So it was a bit of all sorts, to be honest. Yeah. And we did have a relatively large um, budget for refit because we had a brand new um, unit, just a concrete shell. Mm-hmm. But what that meant was it had been empty for a couple of years and it meant that we could negotiate really hard um, with the landlord and get a fantastic deal. Yeah. I mean, we actually negotiated six months rent free, mm-hmm. which um, I've since learned. I mean, with hindsight, we kind of, in our um, innocence, didn't really know that at the time, but it's kind of unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure we'd ever get that again. But we managed to get six months, which meant that obviously for the first six months, we didn't have any rent going out. And it meant that the money that we had spent on the refit, you know, on, on even having a concrete floor put down, on installing all of the electric services, on completely fitting out the shop, it meant that that money we could kind of claw back yeah. um, in the first half year's trading, which was vital, really. And I would definitely, that that's always a piece of advice. Whenever whenever we talk to, to kind of wannabe sandwich bar owners who are mm. taking over a mm. unit, is don't underestimate, you know, how long the refit can take and what it'll cost you and do all that you can to kind of minimise and recoup those costs right at the beginning. And don't underestimate how important it is to, to really keep your builder under control, keep your solicitor under control, yeah. so that at no point are you sitting there paying the rent without making any money. You know, you've really got to limit that period. I mean, uh, approximate. I mean, this is a, how long is a piece of string, and it depends where you're setting up, and so on, and so on, and so on. But I mean, how if I wanted to set up a a, a sandwich bar in my local southeast town, uh, how much am I going to need? You know, how much am I going to be looking at to set to, to to basically get something up and running? I would say around about um, between forty and sixty thousand. Okay. Yeah. Um, obviously, depending on the the unit and the you know, whether it's kind of relatively high footfall or a bit off the beaten track and 
whether or not you know you need to do a really big refurb or whether or not it's it's already in relatively good order yeah but i think that's probably a good ballpark figure and how i mean in terms of your case how long did it take as it were before before you got to the point where you're basically breaking even stroke straight into profit we were breaking even from from day one um yeah you know we we and that's kind of how we approached it we we didn't approach it thinking, oh, you know, businesses don't make money at the beginning. Because quite frankly, I don't, I don't think that's right. Certainly not with retail. No, you know, no, if, no, if you're just no. opening up, certainly food retail, there's absolutely no, no reason why you wouldn't make money right from the beginning yeah. if, you, if you've got it right. So we broke even from, from day one. Um, and I think we were probably, you know, well into profit and very happy a couple of months in. And it's, it's, it's just grown and grown and grown because we've, we've just been focused on making every single minute of the day profitable for us. So yeah. even, even the periods where the cafe is, might look quiet if you came in for a coffee, we're actually, you know, we've got two girls out doing various sandwich delivery rounds, making money, you know, outside yeah. of the cafe. So, you know, and that's the key um, is, is, to make, is to make money every single minute of, of the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, like a lot of local businesses, a lot of their business, I mean, <laughs> very, very obviously comes from local people in, in, in you know, down, down your high street, but also from other local businesses, as you kind of hint there, you know, you're out delivering sandwiches, presumably mm-hmm. to local offices um, uh, to keep, keep the, you know, the money flowing in even when the shop's quiet. What advice have you got for people who, you know, what, what strategies did you take to try and get your name out there as opposed to your competitors? Again, you know, it's a very competitive field, that kind of. Uh, office sandwich delivery situation it is well i think a a tax that we did take right from the beginning was to enter our various local awards yeah because that's a really good way to particularly with with business customers to to demonstrate to them that you're very professional and that they can really trust you and take you seriously and it sets you aside from your competitors so I think particularly for, for the business customer audience, winning awards is very important. And secondly, um, really, we kind of grew just naturally through our location is, is, is very central and we get lots of different office workers coming in to buy their own lunch. Yeah. And it was really capitalizing on that relationship that we were building with them as an individual yeah. to kind of get a foot in with the business that they worked within. Yeah, yeah. And that's really the, the best tactic I think you can take. You know, Rich and I are there each day, you know, we're chatting, we're chatting to people all the time, you know, where do you work, how's work going, you know, and by the way, who does your sandwich delivery. And I think that, you know, as the cafe owners, that's really vital. And so many times you hear of, you know, cafes opening up and the owners are there a bit to begin with, and then they kind of leave it for staff to run. And you really are going to miss out on all of that business opportunity if you're not there building relationships yourself and talking to people. Um, and being a bit wise. Yeah, absolutely. Doing a bit of kind of uh, discreet cross-selling. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, obviously, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got past the, the sort of dreaded two-year mark into your third birthday, well-established business, um, plans for growth, presumably a bit of a kind of cash reserve in the bank. Yeah. What over those first three years? Because it, it sounds like it's all gone really smoothly for you, which it may, 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 maybe it has done. But but what yeah, were the, what yeah. were the really what were the really tough bits uh, during that smooth course? Well, I think getting used to a completely different way of working. I think for for anyone who's going from say an office job or, or you know a different a different career to opening up their own business, no matter what business it is, yeah. particularly retail, I think it's it's a really steep learning curve. 
it's not only physically demanding, but it's a very different way of working. If you're used to having, you know, an office full of colleagues who are, you know, all in your peer group, all at a similar level, all kind of ambitious and and then to go into a shop where your staff perhaps aren't aren't those people anymore. Yeah. That's that's really hard and it takes quite a long time like personally to adjust to that change. Mm. And I think that, that that is um is something that you have to get your head around in the first six months and then you start to adjust and it, it starts to feel a bit more natural. Yeah. I think secondly, the issue of staffing and I think that what we've learned in the last three years is that it's never going to be easy yeah. and it's always going to be um, a constant cycle. Yeah. No matter how good your recruitment and training process is, you will have, you know, a couple of months that feel like, you know, the sun is shining down on your shop and you've got an amazing team yeah. and they all work really well together. And then one of them will leave because that's the nature of, you know, minimum wage, exactly. part-time staff, they're not there forever. Yeah. And then before you know it, you've recruited one who perhaps isn't quite as good yeah. and then the team isn't quite as good. And then you could go through a really bad patch, which we're going through at the moment, where you just seem to think, my God, how hard <laughs> is it to recruit people with a decent work ethic? Yeah. You know, and we, but we know it will get better again. Indeed. Um, yep. And it's just a constant cycle. And that is quite a tricky thing to get your head around when you're meticulously kind of organizing your business and you're planning it all. Yeah. But even then, you haven't got control over it. People are unpredictable, um, aren't they? Very unpredictable. Yeah. And that's really hard to deal with. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, it is, it's, people are always the, the hardest thing to, to manage within any business, are, I think. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the sums, the spreadsheets and the advertising and the PR, I guess, are, are kind of a, a walk in the park compared to... to Getting good staff, but um, that's. Absolutely. I think I think that 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 will uh, ring true with anybody in any business or who, who's, who's running their, their own yeah. business. How has the whole kind of work-life balance thing worked out for you? Because retail, in particular, is incredibly um, time-consuming, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. I think that now at this point it's, it's worked out very well, but I, I think there's some caveats with that. Um, Rich and I are a married couple, so we share the responsibility equally. Mm. Um, and I think it's very different if you open a, a cafe or retail business up on your own, because you are solely responsible. Yeah. Um, so whereby Rich and I, you know, from about the kind of 18 month point, we're in a position where we could start to have a day at home in the office instead of six days a week in the shop. Um, and gradually, gradually kind of, you know, taking more time at home to do other things like the book that I've written. I never would have had a chance to do that yeah. if if I was running Taste on my own. And the mentoring that we do, we never have, would have an opportunity to, to branch out and try other things if we, if we weren't sharing the responsibility. Yeah. So I think because of that, our work-life our work life balance is as we want it to be. It's, it's fantastic. You know, and our friends joke, you know, whenever they call us, we seem to be at home watching <laughs> working lunch or something. You know, yeah. but I think that's great. But I know the friend of mine who, who I knew that opened a sandwich bar on his own in, in Cardiff, yeah. he ended up selling it two years in because he was doing it on his own. It was six days a week. It was... You know, whenever a staff member called in sick, it was him who would have to go in and deal with it. And I think that, that you have to be quite realistic. The first six months, nine months, 12 months of any business, you can't expect to have that dream work-life balance, no. you know, where you're able to potter along and pick the kids up from school or, you know, at half three and it'd be no big deal to go over the park for an hour and, and all of that. You're not going to have that in the first year. No. You, and you've got to be realistic about that. But then 
if that's your goal, if that's part of the reason you've set the business up, and if you've made sure the numbers add up right from the beginning, at that point, you can start introducing staff that who can manage yeah. it for you and create that situation. But you need to have built that goal in right from the start and know that eventually the numbers will add up yeah, yeah, yeah. and that you yeah. can train to enable that. Yeah. It won't just happen because you own your own business. No, absolutely. Okay, now I think that's really, really good advice. Two final questions. Mm-hmm. Recession and retail, what, what are the things that you think need to be done to help high street retailers right now? Firstly, I actually think high, high, high street retailers, particularly independents, can really use this opportunity to really help themselves. And I think that what's very clear through our business model is that people aren't yet feeling like they don't want to pay a bit of a premium, but they are absolutely adamant that they want value for it and they want to feel like they're getting great service. Yeah. And I think that as an independent retailer, no matter what you retail, you can you can really sell on that point. And I think that could actually put you in a stronger position, regardless of whether it's a recession or not. Mm. Because, you know, we, we've only noticed a tiny drop off on, on takings last year. It's really not that significant. And we're finding all of our regulars are still more than happy to come in because they feel they get value for money. Yeah. And that's really, really important. You don't always feel like you get that at a big national chain. Mm-hmm do with the owner serving you and they remember who you are and they remember what you like and they make damn sure the quality's great you know and i i imagine that they they're potentially more inclined to support local businesses where they're where they're definitely. local real local businesses as it were definitely and that again it all comes back to you know the fact that you've got to know them you've built that relationship yeah. then they are definitely willing to support you as long as you don't let them down you know yeah. and if you don't let them down and you keep your standards high and you keep your promises to them then they will keep coming back and support you. I do think that that there's not... I personally don't think there's that much that can be done from a kind of governmental perspective mm-hmm. other than things like, you know, which I don't think they are, you know, increasing the minimum wage again or, or making any more changes to, to, um, to how many days holiday um, yeah. staff are entitled to. Because personally, I think that, that at the moment it really has reached its limit. And I and I look at the number of days holiday that, that we need to we need to give our staff. I look at, you know, the, the kind of statutory sick pay and maternity benefits mm. and, and all of that and I think, right, surely yes, it's, you know, we're fair, we're very fair, but it really doesn't need to go any further for, for you know, for part time flexible staff. Mm. I think that, that the situation is more than generous for them. And I think that the government would be insane to push anything else onto small businesses, particularly at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. When, when everything else is already kind of biting at their heels. And finally, uh, as you mentioned, you've written this, 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 I have to admit to not having read it, but you have written what I assume <laughs> is a great book called Start and Run a, Sand, uh, a Sandwich and Coffee Shop. Well, it's got great reviews on Amazon, which well, is there nice we are. to see. <laughs> and I am, it's the, exactly the kind of book that I actually would see um, selling very, very well, because I think, there's, I think there's a lot of people who, who at some point will have thought about or seriously are planning launching something like that. So I think it's in the top three, actually. Is it? I think, um, I think like, salons and nail bars and things is up there as well. Yeah. But I know it's kind of, you know, one of the top, top three, three, I retail. think, in yeah, terms absolutely. of startups. I'm sure there's a wealth of uh, really useful, practical information in there. But if you were to pick three short pithy nuggets of advice from that book to share with someone wanting to set up a retail sandwich shop or coffee shop what would they be absolutely do your research and don't underestimate how long that research will take um you know give yourself a good four months to go to every trade show to to visit you know numerous town centers around the country to 
eat a million and one sandwiches, that's absolutely critical. Don't just think in isolation, you've got an idea, talk to a few family members who of course say it's great. Yeah. And and then go with it because you know you'll be really you'll be really surprised at how wrong you've you've got it. I'd imagine in your town centre. Yeah. Um. So do your research, do your business plan. Um. And that's not so much because someone else needs to read it. You need to have it down on paper, and it forces you to really do the numbers properly. It forces you to think it all through, and to to really um to make some very very difficult decisions. Ultimately, to make sure that you don't invest in something and lose all of your money. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. It's your investment at the end of the day, and you surely want to get it right. So do your business plan properly. Do it thoroughly. I think then the, the final thing would be, I think it would really be budget and forecast and manage your cash flow yeah. properly. You, you can't approach a business in the same way that you might approach your personal banking. Everything has to be documented. You, you have to know what's coming in, what's going out, when it's going out. You have to negotiate the best possible price. You know, you have to really be like an eagle on your money. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the minute that it starts to get out of control, um, it's a really slippery slope. And I, I think one, a very, very difficult one to come back from, and particularly in this economic climate, they're, the, they're really the things you've got to get right. Because if you don't, then you really do risk it not working. So I, I would say that they would be my my top three, regardless of, of the business that you're starting up. I think uh, I think your your uh, your skills as a business mentor shine through because those are those are three I think three um, you know uh, absolutely fantastic points that that any business, let alone a you know sandwich shop, should be focusing on. So um, Jill, thanks ever so much for, for talking welcome. to me today really good I wish you all the best of luck uh, particularly with the rollout um, and thanks for thanks for coming on thank you well an enormous amount of really practical advice there if you were you know running a, a any kind of retail outlet or thinking of doing so Jill's words really strike home but really strike home too in a general business sense lots of advice for anyone running a business so thanks to Jill for that and now let's go straight to a listener book review from Chris Lee, who incidentally has also just started blogging on smallbizpod.co.uk forward slash blog. So he's writing about how your business can make the most of publicity, PR and getting the word out there in social media. So do check his articles out. Uh, Chris's book review coming up. If you would like to review a business book, then just drop me a line at alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. I'll tell you what's sitting on my desk. And all that you've then got to do is review it. Simple. So there we are. Look forward to hearing from you. Alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. But now let's go to Chris. Hello there. My name's Chris Lee, and I'm a freelance digital media and PR consultant based in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. The book I'm reviewing is called How to Get Clients to Come to You by a marketing consultant called Nigel Temple. Now, when I was handed this book by Alex, he said he was yet to receive a negative book review as part of his podcast series. But don't worry, Nigel, this won't be a negative review either. The book's actually pretty good. How to Get Clients to Come to You is a small reference book rather than the size of a city break guide and retails for £6.99 in the UK. The author is an experienced marketing consultant, and as you'd expect from the title, the book focuses on how firms can increase their chances of winning and retaining repeat custom. Now, seven is one of those numbers that works wonders in marketing. One thinks of three, the magic number, the perfect ten, the magnificent seven. Temple here hones in on the seven key stages which he believes are the route to winning and retaining clients. In a nutshell, these are those seven. 
Visualize a client-rich future. This is a rather surreal start to the book, as the reader is asked to close their eyes and meditate on a situation where they're inundated with clients. It reminds me a little of the relaxation channel on Qantas Airlines, but this chapter does have a serious message. You've got to be serious and self-disciplined about where you want to be and visualize how you're going to get there. This chapter includes some good tips on how to set out your stool early on. Stage two is think in detail. This chapter includes some interesting graphs and a protracted plug for something called mind mapping, which aims to help people organize themselves. The chapter is good from a refresher perspective, but I expect most senior people to be fairly clued up on a lot of the stuff in here as standard. Stage three is to apply client attraction laws. This is a pick and mix of good tips for firms to set up their basic marketing in a cost-effective manner. A lot of it is old school best practice, but useful insight for the young marketer and a good refresher course for the more experienced pro. Stage four is using internet marketing, and as this is my field, I paid particularly close attention. On the whole, Temple gets it right here, and as the web is the most potent marketing tool at any company's disposal, so small business owners should all sit up and take note here. The only downside is a bit technically light, and I don't agree with the website layout that he puts in as an example. I think it's too busy and word-heavy. But anyway, on the whole, this chapter is solid. Stage five concerns networking, and it's all good old school stuff again, but there's no mention of networking online, such as via LinkedIn, or even building your own social networks. This chapter covers another of my personal beats, public relations, and although basic principles are there again, I feel this section is somewhat behind the times. Having said that, the book was published in 2007. Whereas the PR section might not have impressed me, I, I couldn't agree more with chapter six, writing compelling words. Well-written, engaging, and informative content is essential for the internet era, for search engine optimization reasons as much as anything else. Temple, however, focuses on other marketing materials, which are quite interesting in themselves and worth a look. Chapter 7 is inspirationally named Take Action, and includes a nice checklist of things to do in a step-by-step -step manner, and a buzzword glossary as well, which is always handy in marketing. So, in conclusion... The book says it's aimed at business owners and directors, marketing professionals, service professionals, added value product providers and sales lead generators. If this is the case, then I think these level of professionals should already have a grasp on the basics which the book covers. But it does provide some good extra ideas. I'd like to echo Temple's sentiments when he says that marketing is a journey, not a destination. It revolves around a deep understanding of clients. The purpose of marketing is to create and keep those clients. Always focus on the client and organise around them and their needs. The book isn't a classic. I didn't leave it feeling inspired the same way as I do when I read, for example, Seth Godin's books. But it covers a lot of the basics and should be quite good background. It's easy to read and at a mere £6.99, I don't think you'll feel robbed even if you didn't like it. That's How to Get Clients to Come to You by Nigel Temple, published by words at work and you can reach Nigel at www.nigeltemple.com and if you're interested in learning what digital media could do for your business check out my website cmrle.com and do please get in touch okay thanks a lot chris another great review keep them coming if you're a listener and would like to review a book alex at smallbizpod.co.uk is the place to drop me an email now, not so long ago, I interviewed one of the U.S.'s most well-known gurus on entrepreneurship and small businesses, uh, Michael Gerber, and uh, his latest book, Awakening the Entrepreneur Within, uh, which costs £16.79, is one of those that you could download with your free Audible 
choice, which is offered to Small Biz Pod and Small Biz Pod listeners. So head over to audible.co.uk, A-U-D-I-B-L-E.co.uk forward slash Small Biz Pod or click on one of the banners on the site and uh, you could download his latest for free. So check out the podcast if you fancy the book. That would be my Audible book choice of the week. So there we are. Uh, I'm sure once you try the, the free trial, you'll enjoy it and you'll stick with it. But if you don't, you get a free audiobook out of it and there's no commitment. So do head over and uh, that would be great. Now on to the music choice for this week's episode. And uh, this is a, a techno track from B6, who, believe it or not, is a Chinese techno artist. And this track is called Blind Leading the Blist. <laughs> 